Good morning, everyone. Kevin here from Skywatcher, and welcome to another episode of the What's Up webcast. We do this every Friday, 10 a.m. Pacific, right here at the Skywatcher USA YouTube channel. Uh, thanks for hanging out. I hope you enjoy hanging out with us. Um, like I said, we do this every Friday, 10 a.m. Pacific. We take a look at everything from what's up in the nighttime sky to equipment to helpful tips and tricks for imaging. And then, of course, the last Friday of the month, we have a special guest on to talk about their specialty in astronomy. Um, well, everyone else is doing it. So, hi, Kevin here from Arizona, where it's sunny and kind of cold. I feel bad for everybody else who's, like, freezing and feet under snow, but... Snow doesn't exist here unless you live up in the north part. So, but anyway, uh, welcome to Skywatcher What's Up webcast. Um, if you like what you see here today, please go ahead and subscribe. Uh, we have a new little square in the bottom of right, should be on your right, um, of the uh, screen there. Uh, we'll work that around so our logos don't stack, but that's a subscribe button. Go ahead and smash that um, if you could. That lets us know we're doing a good job and that we should keep going and not abandon this at all. Um, but if you do like what you see here, we do appreciate it. Maybe leave a like on the video. Um, if you have ideas for a future episode, uh, email us at info at skywatcherusa.com. Title it, What's Up? And that way we know what to you know keep an eye out for. If you have given us an idea before, thank you. Um, if you haven't seen that idea come up, don't worry. Um, it does take time for us to build episodes and schedule and do things like that. So just because we haven't done an episode doesn't mean it's not under consideration, um, but we're always looking for ideas. Uh, if you want to stay um, up in front on what's going with Skywatch, you can go to skywatcherusa.com, go up to the top and hit the uh, subscribe and save button, put your email in there. I promise we won't spam you with anything other than our stuff, but... Uh, yeah, if you want to stay involved and see what's going on at Skywatcher, head over there um, and see what's going on over there. And, of course, the guys in marketing always want me to tell you about our uh, Threadless store. If you're looking for shirts or all kinds of Skywatcher swag that's not actual equipment, um, you know, a hoodie or something to keep you warm is actually good equipment. But you can get all kinds of stuff here um, at the Threadless store, so go ahead and check that out. Uh, we appreciate you uh, supporting uh, Skywatcher and just hanging out with us um, with all that. So, um, it is the first Friday of February. We're already a month into 2022. Just a, a freaking blur at this point. Um, so, we're going to start off with the biggest, brightest thing in the nighttime sky. Of course, that's the moon. Um I'm sure if you go out and just throw the garbage out at night or just hang out, you've probably seen that little crescent moon hanging out in the western sky. The moon has already made its way um, up back into the sky. New moon was February 1st, so that's gone. Um, the dark sky weekend uh, would be this this weekend, the 5th and the 6th. Um, you will have a little bit of a crescent moon. Um, bring up uh, Stellarium here. Uh, there is a thin crescent moon that's hanging out up there right now. That should be gone by the time, you know, the evening really, you know, pushes along. Um, so if you're looking to get some nice stuff sitting up in the Orion constellation, you know, Auriga, Gemini, uh, uh, 
Canis Major and all that fun stuff, the real hardcore winter stuff, you still have uh, plenty of time to get that with the moon out of the sky. But fear not, there actually is another Dark Sky weekend, probably a better one coming up at the end of the month, the last weekend of the month. Uh, there's a very thin uh, crescent in the early mornings, so if you're looking to kind of take advantage of any of the winter targets with no moon in the early evening, that would be the weekend to go and uh, check that out, um, make, a, make a plan for, you know, going out and doing something on that weekend. So we have two pretty usable dark weekends uh, this year, so or this month, I'm sorry. Uh, so that that's kind of cool. Uh, full moon, um, that is on February 16th. Um, so it's coming up here. The moon's going to get bright. It's the snow moon. Uh, it's given the name because of the heavy snowfall that generally happens uh, this time of year in the northern hemisphere. Uh, that's where it gets its name. Uh, but that's the snow moon. You can always go to the Farmer's Almanac uh, website. It gives you all the folklore and information behind um you know all the different full moon names if you do outreach events it's fun to kind of tell people the folklore of you know how each full moon got its name and blah 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 um it's kind of a fun thing to have uh as content um if you're looking for something but yep this is the snow moon um uh, before we make our way into march and bring uh the coming spring season so we're deep in winter right now in the northern hemisphere uh, as for planets, the planet season is pretty much done right now um, until we start getting into more of the summertime um, at the moment. The only real naked eye planet that's still hanging out right now is Jupiter. Uh, Jupiter is hanging out in the western sky. Uh, you lure out the other night. Uh, was it Monday? Um I don't remember what day it was, but a few nights ago we had a real thin crescent. Uh, see if I can back this up a little bit. Eh, right there. Um, we had a real thin crescent paired with Jupiter the other night. It was very pretty. Um, I didn't get a picture of it, unfortunately, but it was kind of cool to see that thin crescent moon in Jupiter. Jupiter's hanging out way in the west right now. Um, you know... It's pretty much gone by the time it effectively gets dark um, at this point. So, you know, we're pretty much wrapped up with the the naked eye planets for the time being. Um, probably until summer. Um, summer will probably start to get, I think we get Mars back in the sky later this year, which will be kind of cool. Um, won't be as good as it was a couple years ago, but um, it's definitely worth... Uh, Keep an eye out for that. And then, of course, uh, Venus, and we'll get the other planets as we go back into autumn uh, later this year. But uh, we're pretty much wrapped up for the early part of the year with planets. Um, however, we still have some hanging out there besides Jupiter. Uh, Uranus is still easy to catch right now. Um, these ones do take a telescope. Uranus is actually way up here, um, right there. There we go. It's hanging up. Uh, which one is it in? It's kind of right near Aries and Cetus. I don't know actually which constellation it's effectively in. I don't know if it tells me in this uh, data set right here. Probably somewhere that I'm not seeing. Anyway, who cares? Um, oh, it's in Aries. But it's right on the border there between Cetus and Aries uh, right now. So it's it's kind of in front of the Pleiades. 
But um, Uranus is an easy one to go catch right now in a small telescope. It's kind of a fun one to see because of how far it is away. Uh, if you want to show some friends and family, it's always a good one too because it's not one that you can generally see naked eye. So a small telescope, you can see the little blue ball hanging out there. But it's, a, it's one of my favorites actually because it's a little bit more of a challenge uh, to see it. It's not just, oh, there it is. Um, so we will see that far and hanging out there. But um, it's definitely a good one to go after. If you're trying to do some imaging on it, though, it is, it's a challenge. You're going to need a big scope, lots of focal length to get that image scale up. So good luck. Um, but yeah, so give that one a shot. And then, of course, uh, the last planet that's actually up right now is Neptune. Uh, Neptune's hanging out. It's not far from Jupiter and the moon right now. Um, it's right in here, actually. Whoa, where are we going? Sorry. It has a mind of its own. Uh, let's see. There it is. There's Neptune. Neptune's kind of hanging out between Jupiter and the moon. Um this one's a bit more challenging than Uranus is. It's actually something that um, would take a little bit more aperture to get, a little bit more magnification because it is quite small, and it's also a darker blue, so it can blend in to the star field a little bit more because it's so much smaller than Uranus. It's, Uranus pops out amongst the star field. Everything looks like a dot up until you kind of past the planet and it looks like this uh, blue bubble that's in the field um, so it's clearly something that's not a star where neptune being much, so much smaller um, you want to take your time because you can easily pass by it um, if you have a go-to telescope obviously it's a lot easier to get that centered and find it but if you are just kind of manually finding your way over there i know some people are like oh manual work what is that um but yes if you are actually star hopping to find it it can be a little bit more of a challenge uh, to actually locate it and pass by it because it is so much smaller so larger telescope higher magnification that's always helpful um, as well so good luck with that that's really all the planets that are up right now um you know venus is up in the morning right now big and bright um mars is right around venus somewhere i haven't double checked on that one and uh, uh saturn is right near the sun right now so we'll have to wait a couple weeks before that one ropes around into the the early morning hours again so um yeah that's pretty much it for the planets not a lot going on um this month actually uh the sun however is really kicking off some cool stuff. I don't change these slides um, just because the sun is super dynamic. Um, and I try to encourage people just to get out and go observe the sun. I was, uh, this was noted like last month, so I should bring this up every time. Please do not observe the sun without the proper equipment. Um, it's You will damage your eyes, you'll damage your equipment. Um, please, please, please make sure you absolutely know what you're doing before you go out and observe the sun, especially if you're new and you're not really well acquainted with it. Uh, we have several episodes that we did about a year or two ago on the channel. You can go back and it tells you all about how to observe the sun and how to do it safely with what type of equipment. So you can go back and check out those episodes. But the sun is getting very dynamic right now. Um, and a website that I actually like to go check out, let me get rid of this is i just type in gong g-o-n-g-h alpha and it takes find this website 
Um, but this update, so these are hydrogen alpha um, telescopes. Let me see why it's not blowing. Here we go. Um, but this is a live image of the sun right now, taking about a minute or two ago. Um, very big prominence up there right now. Several active regions. Um, really nice filament right here and here. And, of course, this big active region um, hanging out. I don't know why. Usually it should... There we go. I don't know why it didn't let me do that earlier. But there's a lot of cool stuff going on up there right now. Really nice filament. Big old prominence right now. So today is... If you have an H-alpha filter for the sun, um, go use it if you can. Um, over the last week, uh, when we have a star adventure, like a little mount come in for testing, um, I usually put like a solar telescope on it to let it just double check tracking and make sure it's working correctly. But... It gives me a chance to actually observe the sun a little bit here and there uh, during the week with a little telescope. And it's it's been going off up there lately. Lots of cool things uh, to see up there. So um, definitely, if you've got an H-alpha filter, definitely, definitely get out there and take a look at it. Um, if you have a white light filter, that's okay. You're not going to be able to see a lot of the... The real cool detail of it but you'll still be able to see the sunspots in these very complex active regions um so don't let a white light filter stop you um, from going out and doing it but h alpha when it comes to the sun is really where it's at honestly um and there's a lot of options out there uh, we're actually going to do probably another episode on solar observing primarily for the upcoming 2023 and 2024 eclipses so probably sometime in october of this year about a year out we're going to do a whole episode on prepping for that because it's definitely something with the eclipses coming up and equipment being difficult to get and equipment being very difficult to get with it anything involving the sun as we approach eclipses and now that we've got two back to back it's going to be crazy so we're going to talk about things to consider and have enough time to get stuff you know obtained in time for those eclipses but anyway um, that's pretty much it for the sun. It changes every day. I have several friends who love to sketch the sun. It's very cool to see their work because it just, it changes every day. And then if you're an imager, um, it changes hour to hour. I mean, you can do time lapses of these prominences and actually watch them change. It's a very cool object to see, but you know, you've got to make sure you're doing, doing it correctly. So you don't hurt anything like your eyes, especially. So you only get two chances. One, two, done. So please, please be careful when observing the sun. Meteor showers. And you'd be surprised because this month we have nothing. There's no meteor showers. There's like a tail end of one um, that's ending today officially. But there's nothing happening this month when it comes to meteor showers so oh well can't have everything so uh comets um i honestly haven't been keeping up with comets as much there are comets up there if you ever want to go this is the website that i use if i'm ever going to go track down a comet to observe just to see what's cool um you know these are the big comets that are up right now it gives you all the information then as you scroll down um you can see it so we still have c 2019 l3 atlas is hanging out um it's pretty high in the sky right now um it's uh, it's kind of small uh, magnitude is nine 
9.2 magnitude. So you're probably looking at like a eight or 10 inch telescope ish to really, really get it and be able to grasp it. Probably a six inch would do too. Uh, 19p Borelli is still hanging out there. It's nice and high um, right now. Um, it's up in Aries, so it's it's not it's easily positioned. Probably be a good imaging target. Um, this one I'm not uh, familiar with. Um, it is nice and high. It's in Taurus right now, so this one's also very easy to catch right now. Uh, magnitude 10. It's probably pretty small as well, but you know as we go down the list there, there are plenty of different objects to go. Um, catch there and this goes into the southern hemisphere as well so this is a really good website to actually go check out if you're really interested in comets it keeps up with all the different things that are out there and this is what I like to use when you know whether I'm going out to a dark sky and trying to visually observe a comet or if I'm trying to image a comet on the telescope um, this is a good one to kind of plan out what's actually up for the the week I'm sorry or not the week, but what's actually up and easy to go obtain um, during that um, during that period. So I recommend, um, if you're just tuning in and missed it, it's uh, cometchasing.skyhound.com um, is the website that I like to use. And, it's, and then from there, I'll go into like Sky Safari or something like that and actually chart out where it's at. And then I can go chase it down and something like that. But that's how I kind of approach imaging or observing a comet. Um, they're kind of fun, and we've had some really nice ones lately, too. You know, Leonard really put on a show for a lot of people. Of course, the Southern Hemisphere got the better show again. But uh, we had a pretty good run with Comet Leonard. So, uh, anyway, um, this episode might be might be a little short. I say that because I could talk about astronomy all day long, and I do. Um, but, seriously... There's not a lot going on in February. We're almost in that transition period, too, between the winter and the spring. So in the early part of the evening, you know, we have a lot of the big winter, you know, constellations are still hanging out there. Um, you know, Pegasus is still hanging out there. You still have Andromeda and M33 are there. But they're very small window to actually get... Um, if you're going to image them, there's a very small window to go out and actually do imaging on that. But if you're in a dark sky site, you can still, you know, observe them in the early evening. They'd be early evening targets. So you have M33 up, yeah, M33 is up here. M31, uh, the Bubble Nebula is still hanging out over here. Double Cluster, all that in Cassiopeia region and Cepheus, um, and then up in Perseus, you still have uh, the California Nebula. Um, you have the Pac-Man Nebula hanging out up there. A bunch of all crazy dark nebulas stuff hanging up in there. Um, but yeah, we're still in that transition um, period. We're deep in winter. Saw so the wintertime stuff, you know, Taurus, which has, you know, the Pleiades cluster has M1 in it, has Synesis 147, which is that big supernova remnant, real big complicated uh, spaghetti nebula is what it's called. The Witch Head is out, Orion, um, uh, ugh, M78, all kinds of stuff through the Orion constellation. Uh, Canis Majoris is out there. There's a bunch of stuff with the winter uh, constellations up. But as the evening progresses, this portion of the sky with like the winter hexagon and stuff like that is moving, giving rise to Cancer, Leo, uh, Leo Mina, Ursa Major. Um, and then uh, uh, as it gets much later, you get into Virgo. So galaxy season is we are on the cusp of galaxy season. And if you imaging all night 
you are going to be able to move into those galaxies later on. So um, there's a lot of deep sky targets that are up right now. Of course, I'm just going to jump into them right now. M42, um, Orion Nebula, obviously is the most popular object in the winter sky. Um, 1,600 light years away. This one... Every single person who's ever used a telescope recently, this is like the target to start with. It's easy to image. You can see it from even the crappiest of skies. You can see some of the nebulosity there. Um, in dark skies, it's mind-blowing, especially when you get a big telescope on it. Um, and imaging, imaging-wise, it's, it's an awesome target to shoot with because it's easy. Um, you can really learn the fundamentals of astrophotography when you do this. Um, it's good for one shot color cameras. It's good for monochrome cameras. You can do it in narrow band, um, from, you know, with H alpha O three S two, you can get all kinds of different, you know, palettes on M 42 and the running man. Um, so there's all kinds of things that you can do, um, with this nebula, but very easy to find, very easy to see in almost any optic. You can see it in binoculars, um, but it's a great object. It's well positioned right now. So obviously I'm just going to start, um, off because this is like the target everyone, you know, it's like an old friend. You see him every year. Um, but it's, it's a great target to see. And it's kind of that staple of the winter skies that you just have to go, you know, look at it every night when you're out observing or, you know, if you're imaging, it's a, you know, it's a good one to kind of dust off. There's a lot of people out there though that um, it is easy. It's an easy target. However, there are levels of complexity with M42 and this region um, that can help you refine, I guess I would say, your imaging capabilities because you can start experimenting with different combinations um, here like I've done here. This is a one-shot color with luminance applied, so it boosts the background. Um, plus... H-alpha is blended in there as well, which pulls out all this crazy detail in the background there. Um, some of you have seen this image um, previous episodes. But the thing that I find really uh, complex about uh, this region is the trapezium in the middle of the nebula blows out all the time. You have to take short exposures and really learn how to process and blend uh, the real bright you know, extent of the nebula while not blowing out the core. So that's a real trick to learn on this nebula is to be able to learning how to process that kind of detail in with it while still maintaining all this faint wispy stuff. And it's, it took me a while to figure it out and I am no imaging uh, or processing master. Um, I've been asked to do processing videos. It's different every time I use a combination of all kinds of things, but this particular region, it's an excellent place to get started. It's easy to do from the backyard, um, but it can help you really teach yourself how to um, deal with different levels of uh, imaging. And then if you're a visual observer, I really like going into this region because there's all kinds of intricate detail inside of... Uh, the nebula, you know, especially when you get to a dark sky site, maybe you push the magnification. How many stars can you see in the trapezium? You know, can you see four? Can you see six? Can you see 10? 
because there's a lot more than six. I have a lot of friends that, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F. And those are the stars of the trapezium that you can generally see in like a three inch refractor. There's a lot more in there, though. And after you pass the first six stars, you need some serious aperture to dig them out, uh, those little ones in there. So if you've got a friend who's got a big daub and you're in a dark sky site with some good seeing and high magnification, you know, challenge yourself. See if you can see some of this wispy stuff. Um, I do find that a lot of astronomers, myself included, um, we go to all of our favorite targets like, you know, M42, maybe do the Ring Nebula in the summer, and we take a look at it, and then we move on to the next target. But we don't actually sit there and observe it. We don't look at the details. We're just like, wow, that's really cool. You take it in for a few seconds. But a lot of us tend to blow over really looking for more details out of it. And I find that sometimes I've had to do it myself where you kind of have to hit the brakes when you're observing. And don't worry about hitting 57 targets in one night when you're viewing take your time really look at it play with filters play with magnification i've had a lot of people tell me oh don't put a three millimeter eyepiece it's gonna look like trash try it it looks like trash back it off you know but mess with your telescope and see what you can actually get out of it experiment with it because there's a lot of times if you take more time to observe it you actually can see certain details and, you know, little tiny things in these objects that people tend to uh, move past really quick because they don't spend the time to look at it. There's no rush in astronomy. So um, take your time with it. And I know that happens all the time. You know, maybe you're only out for an hour. It's freaking cold right now um, for a lot of people. So I get it. But if you do have the time, if you're at a dark site, maybe you're out with some friends, hit the brakes. You know, don't worry about hitting all the targets on your list for the night. Take your time. Observe it. Really take it in. See what you can get out of it because you'd probably be surprised. No matter what telescope or optic you're using, you'd probably be surprised what you're able to do um, with your equipment if you just take the time and relax and view Um and we all, it happens to all of us. So, uh, anyway, my favorite target for this time of year is the horse head in the flame, uh, right next door to M42. It's in the constellation of Orion, 1500 light years away. It's right off the bright star on the tack in the belt, uh, region. Um, what I think is really kind of neat about these two nebulas being next to each other is you have M42, which is blazingly easy to see. And then you have the horse head, which is all over the place. It's on the front of books. It's everywhere. And it's impossible to see. Like, it's not impossible, but it is, it is way more challenging um, than M42 is. So the horse head nebula from a dark sky site, that's really what's required. Um, this is an object, like I was saying before, that takes patience. Um, I've observed it several times in various apertures. The smallest I've seen it is a six inch Takahashi refractor with a H beta filter. And it was there seeing was very good that night. And it was also high in the sky. Um, so when you're observing the horse head nebula, you're looking for a black thumbprint on black paper is essentially how I could explain that. What you're looking for is this region 
which is IC434, this red region. This is what comes out in an H-beta filter. You're looking for like this bright um, stretch right here. And then when you're observing, what you're looking for when observing the horse head is you're basically looking for what's not there. So you're looking for IC434, this stretch of nebulosity, and then this black pillar that there's nothing there. That's what you're looking for. And it's also a lot bigger than I think people think it is. So um, a good telescope to try this on would probably be around a 12-inch telescope, something that actually benefits from having a filter in place because smaller apertures, filters work well, but the filter is reducing the amount of light coming through. So usually once you get up to 8 and 10 inch telescopes and bigger, filters become a lot more adequate to put in the optical train because uh, you have a lot more punch um, coming through. So I recommend having about a 10 or 12 inch telescope, but I've done it in a, um, in a 6 inch telescope there. But an H-beta, or if you don't have an H-beta, because H-betas, um, while nice filters, they're... They're limited. They're, they can be used for a lot of different things. People call them the horse head uh, filter, but they do a lot of really cool things too on bright nebulas that you may not have seen. If you have an H-beta filter, experiment with it. Um, on M42, it's crazy the detail that comes out um, from it. Um, but if you don't have an H-beta filter, and I, I usually recommend H-beta as like the last filter you buy for your observing kit. Uh, get a UHC filter because it does a UHC does encompass the H beta band um, and will pass that light. So it's not as selective as an H beta is, but a UHC can also help you see the horse head. Uh, the flame nebula is really easy to see. It's not a big deal to see it, um, but it's it's a tough one to get. Imaging wise, however, um, the horse head is a very easy target. It doesn't take a lot to do it. I shot this in my, not this one, but I shot the horse head in my backyard a couple nights ago. Wasn't really happy with it because we were testing something that I can't tell you about yet. Um, but we were testing something. Um, and with today's modern cameras, and especially like these multiband filters that are out, getting a nice presentable image of the horse head nebula from a backyard location is easy. Um, it doesn't take a whole heck of a lot of work. Now, if you want to do like a natural looking image like this one, um, dark skies are a lot more helpful because when you're imaging from your backyard and not using a narrow band set, you get all these gradients and all this weird stuff that you have to process out. So having a dark sky site makes it easier and less work when you come to processing the data because you're not dealing with these green and yellow freaking gradients that are obnoxious to deal with. So... The horse head works very, very good um, from dark skies or from the backyard with the proper equipment. You can do narrow band with it. It's amazing in hydrogen alpha. Just an H alpha image, a black and white monochrome camera with an H alpha filter on the horse head for like an hour of total exposure, not like a single hour shot, is outstanding. And I think if more beginners started with like a monochrome camera and just an H alpha filter, you take a two-minute shot for the first time, been two-by-two two on a fast little optic with an H-alpha filter on the horse head, and it just flies off the screen. It's just, everyone would be stoked if they had that shot like that. That would get, but the problem is you jump in a color camera, and you want the color, and it's all this work, and it, it's whatever. 
But Horsehead, very easy object to get photographically, very challenging target visually. So good luck. Uh, the Pleiades. Pleiades is like the, you know, you just have to do it. Um, you can see this thing naked eye from the backyard or front yard, unless you live in like New York City or something, then that's your fault. Um, it's in Taurus, 500 light years away, about 500 stars in the open cluster. It's easy to see from most average backyards. Um, naked eye to large telescopes, it's it's great. From a dark sky, it's amazing how many stars are in there. You might get some of the nebulosity that's in there, um, but it, it can be a little bit of a challenge unless you're in really nice dark skies. Imaging-wise, however... Um, the nebulosity is pretty easy to get with stock off the shelf stuff in dark skies and modern equipment. It doesn't take much effort. Um, I will say that the nebulosity in this region extends way beyond the Pleiades though. You're in the Taurus, uh, dust cloud at that point. Uh, it's a molecular cloud that's, it ex expands way beyond the Pleiades. The Pleiades is just this little island of stars, um, which is interesting because we did this uh, in last month's uh, virtual star party that I did. I do a lot of research about the objects before we talk about them. What's interesting is the Pleiades cluster itself is actually passing through the nebulosity. It doesn't have anything to do with the cluster itself. It's just merely passing through the dust cloud. So kind of interesting. Um, so... There's a lot of dust up there. It's a don't be afraid to go really wide on the Pleiades with like a wide 85 lens or something like that. Nico Carver's got some really cool stuff. I don't know if he's watching today, but he's got some really awesome stuff. Um, but try it, you know, dig it out, see what's there. But the Pleiades is an awesome uh, object to shoot. Uh, it is not something you can do with neb or, uh, narrow band filters. Uh, this is a reflection nebula, so the dust that makes up this cloud is using reflected is uh, reflecting the starlight from the nearby stars, and this does not emit light in the narrow band frequencies. So you're not going to be able to shoot like the nebulosity with an H alpha O3 or S2 filter. It's invisible in that those wavelengths for the most part. So you might be able to pick up something, but for the most part, it's you know straight luminance or straight one shot color. That's all you can do, and just pound away at it now speaking of the taurus molecular cloud this little thing is hanging out not far from the pleiades this is lbn or Linz bright nebula 777 or the baby eagle nebula this is also in taurus it's not far um from the uh, pleiades this is a dark sky object i've never tried to view it before my guess is it's doable from very dark skies um and a lot of aperture, you know, you want to be able to have that contrast to be able to resolve the detail between the background and this really faint dust that's floating out there. Um, this one really just needs you to pound away um, with luminance or lots of one shot color uh, data, lots of one shot color data stacked. Um, you might be able to pull a little hydrogen out of the region, but being a molecular cloud, there's not a ton of uh, signal in that region or in that frequency, but you can give, we give it a try, but it's not really a narrow band target. Most of these LBN nebulas um, are these dusty, smoky kind of nebulas that are just hanging out there. 
um, in space. I like shooting them a lot, but you really have to approach it by just literally pounding the crap out of the region with exposure time or really deep luminance channels to be able to pull that out. Um, so good luck with it. Um, it's kind of an interesting region, but that's LBN 777. It's up in Taurus, the bull, not far from, uh, Pleiades, the M45. Um, but that is the baby Eagle nebula or the vulture head nebula. You can see like the eye and the beak and stuff like that, but, uh, kind of a cool outcrop of, uh, dust. Uh, there, there's a bigger, uh, image of it, but, uh, good luck with it. It was a fun one to shoot, but it took a couple nights to complete that, um, image. Uh, I have another typo in here. I've, sh I, whatever. This is the Rosette Nebula, which is not IC 2118. I knew I was going to miss that one. Um, this is in Monoceros. The Rosette Nebula, um, I'm going to pass through this real quick just because I don't want it to sit there very long. The Rosette Nebula is a massive region, um, not far from the upper portion of Orion, which is where Monoceros is. But it's a star-forming region, um, mostly hydrogen, composed of a lot of hydrogen gas out there. It's There's technically an open cluster inside of the nebula, which is cool because that's what's carving out that big cavity in the center of the nebula there. Um, the stars are pushing outward with the stellar wind, pushing the cavity open um, as the nebula expands out. But um, the Rosette Nebula is a really cool target because... Um, a, it's, it's huge. Um, this is a full-frame, 1,000-millimeter focal-length shot, and it doesn't fit on the frame. Uh, you really need some wide field optics at this point to really grasp a lot of this. So if you have like a star adventure, some kind of star tracker with these short little refractors or even a lens, um, it's a good one to go after. It also has like this tail that kind of drifts off away from it too. So a uh, very complex region. Um, it is easy to do from dark skies visually. Um, a UHC or an O3 filter brings it out, but it is a lot bigger than a lot of people think it is as well. So um, it's definitely worth going out. You can see it in like a four inch refractor, um, but you want to make sure you're, you're observing carefully and maybe you've got some real dark skies to back you up. Plus the use of an O3 or a UHC filter will help really pop that out visually Imaging wise, you can do it with monochrome or color. Uh, it it is very active in um, narrowband. So if you've got one of these multi-band narrowband filters, or you want to do some you know Hubble palette shot, it is very receptive to the H alpha O3 S2 filters to make out a real cool Hubble palette shot. But there's um, there's a bunch of different ways you can approach it. This is a one shot color uh, image with the uh, H-alpha shot applied as a luminance uh, frame on top of it, which kind of gives you these weird-looking colored stars. Um, but it, it can kind of works as like this super luminance, which brings out all this detail, but it, it doesn't look super natural with the stars. But who cares? It looks cool. Uh, next, not far from... The rosette is NGC 2264, the cone nebula. Um, these are practically connected to each other. If you had a wide enough uh, optic or you're doing a mosaic, the nebulosity from the rosette and the cone nebula almost connect as one big uh, thing. 
Um, so not far from each other. Uh, it's also in Montecero. It's about 2,700 light years. So it's about half the distance between us and the rosette. So it's actually closer to us than the rosette. Um, you can observe this one. It's also called the Christmas tree cluster, which is the open cluster, which was actually found first. Um, and then they found uh, the nebulosity a couple years later, actually. Um but you will need darker skies. That's definitely not something you can do in town. But a UHC or O3 filter will do it. Uh, the cone, you can see it, but having some larger aperture to back you up to get that resolution uh, to bring out the cone nebula is really kind of what you need. Um, so th that's how you would approach it visually. Um, Imaging-wise, uh, you can do this from town. Uh, you do kind of have to worry about the gradients and stuff like that. So you want like a light pollution filter or use these like multi-band narrow band filters to help. Um, it is also an excellent narrow band object. You can do Hubble palettes and all kinds of stuff, but it emits a lot of frequencies in hydrogen O3 and uh, S2. So you can get some cool Hubble palette uh, imagery going on that one. So the cone is also a very easy one to shoot. Um, if you're looking for something that's a little different than just your typical Messier targets. So um, also a very good one. This is one you could probably knock out in about an evening, um, with some modern day gear, um, especially some fast optics. It wouldn't take a whole heck of a lot of effort to pull a nice image of the, the rosette or the cone in a few hours. If you're looking to do an imaging project for the early evening, uh, here's the full, uh, shot there. If you guys wanted to see that again, this is a H A R G B. Uh, where the H-alpha is actually applied as the luminance. I didn't do a full 100% opacity on the hydrogen um, for this one. I actually backed it off a little bit, so it's still kind of letting most of the color data through um, and not letting the hydrogen channel completely overtake it because it got really, really red um, with too much in there, so backed it off to like 60% opacity there. We could probably do an episode. I don't know how you guys want to do it. Uh, kind of blending color with various you know, luminance and hydrogen and stuff like that to see what that does. If you guys want to do like a s somewhat, you know, processing episode, let us know in the chat there. And, you know, maybe we can look at an episode on, you know, how to blend color with other things to pop stuff out. Uh, M78. M78 is gets overlooked quite a bit because it's right next door to M42 and you've got the horse head not far from that. And then on the other side, you've got the rosette and the cone. You have all this stuff floating around. And then there's M78. M78 is this really dusty outcrop um, between the two. It sits right off the Barnard loop, which is this massive hydrogen loop in uh, the constellation Orion. Um, but M78 is really neat because it's a reflection nebula where you have that blue in the middle plus a dark nebula, but there's also a lot of hydrogen in the region. So it's, it can be a very complex object to shoot. Um, visually, it's kind of a challenge because you really just need to rely on the clarity of the sky and the darkness. So you really need to be able to get to somewhat darker skies. You could probably see the basic glow from moderate skies but um you're really just looking what you would see in the telescope is just kind of this glowing section here and then a dark band going over it that's all you're really gonna see in most scopes and as you get to darker skies and bigger optics you probably resolve more of the dusty details out there but all this faint nebulosity and stuff really falls into the imaging world 
Uh, you can do this in pretty much any optic. Um, it looks cool in almost any focal length because there's all kinds of other stuff going on in the region. But um, that's where I would start right there. Um, probably some short focal length refractors work really well. But mostly color, good luminance channel, some hydrogen. Um, here's the color shot uh, all stitched together. This was like a year ago. Um, here's the luminance right here. So a strong luminance channel will help you boost that. Um, just to give you an idea of where it's at, M78 is right here. Here's the horse head. Here's uh, M42. Here's the Barnard loop. So the Barnard, there's a big bright section, almost the brightest section of the loop is just passing uh, M78. So if you're shooting the region, you could probably get a section of that. Um, and then here's the H-alpha channel um, here. You can see that's part of the bright portion of the loop is down here on the left. And then there's a bunch of hydrogen data floating around in there as well. So you can kind of blend that in there. I'm going to try to speed this up a little bit. Um, Sharpless 240, the Spaghetti Nebula, 4,500 light years away. This is very difficult. You need big aperture, dark skies, and you're basically looking for the bright sections. It's a big supernova remnant. Um, this is also a really good one to image. It is something you could do in town with narrow band only. It's very large, so you're going to need very wide field optics to catch it. Um, so there's that one as well. It's a big challenge target. Um, Eskimo Nebula, little planetary hanging up in Gemini. We all know this one. It's an easy one in six inch telescopes. It looks like a little, you know, puff ball sitting next to a, a star in Gemini. It's a fun one to go after. Uh, O3 or UHCs are helpful, but you don't need them. Uh, for imaging, it's kind of tough because you can easily overexpose it. So short exposures and longer focal length. Here's a big crop of it um, as well. But you can blow through this uh, real quick. But it's these planetaries are pretty difficult um, at this point. Um, let's see. This one's very cool. Sharpless 308, uh, the Dolphin Nebula, um, Canis Majoris. This one doesn't come up too high in the northern hemisphere. So you got like a four-hour window depending on where you're at. Um, lots of O3 data um, for this one. It is doable um, from dark skies. It's it's pretty big, though, so be prepared to have a wider field, but Oxygen 3 definitely to approach this um, uh, object if you're looking to shoot it. It's a fun one to do um, right now as well, but it is way down in the southern portion of the, the sky there. Pushing in later into the evening, uh, we are getting into galaxy season, so this is a good one. M106, it's in Canis Majoris. Uh, 25 million light years away from the Earth. This is something you could do in a dark sky site, probably from your backyard on a half-decent night with no moon. You could probably see a little glow. Um, probably a six- or eight-inch telescope to start. Bigger ones, obviously, will show more. Um, good skies help. No filters on galaxies. You could use a light pollution filter, but it really doesn't benefit you a whole bunch. Uh, Imaging-wise, this is a very complex galaxy to image. Um there's a lot of little intricate details and a ton of galaxies in the region. Um, so definitely go about it. Uh, here's an up-close uh, shot of it with the luminance channel. There's a lot of really cool dark regions in here. So um, try to process it. If you're imaging it, try to process it where you don't blow the core out. Um, or use shorter exposures and blend them on top, however you want to do it. But uh, that's a cool one to do. Uh, but I would recommend using some hydrogen alpha if you can get the data. 
So the thing I like about M106 is it has a super massive black hole in the middle of it. And that black hole is whipping up all this hot gas into these red arms um, of material, which you can actually uh, see there. Um, right there is one of those red arms to uh, basically uh, see that detail that we're looking at. Is it actually? Do I have the constellation wrong? Let me double check here. Nah, 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 nah. M106 is it? Oh, it is in Canis Venactici. Sorry, it's right in that area, but it, it technically isn't Canis Venactici. It's not Ursa Major. Sorry about that. Um, anyway, um, it is officially um, in Canis Venactici. My bad. So uh, that's M106, and it's got these really intricate arms um, as well. Let me just go back here real quick. Um, all kinds of cool stuff floating around in there. So very cool object to, to go out and hit. Um, right now but if you have the uh, capability to do monochrome don't skip on doing the hydrogen alpha details and try to pull out these little uh, red arms there's some amazing shots from Hubble of course um, that show that even more but it's very cool to see that detail so um, let's see I think that's it so uh, thanks for watching today I know there's some questions we're gonna get to them in just a second if you like what you've seen here please go ahead and subscribe you can hit the little uh, Skywatcher uh, square in the bottom right corner uh, that opens up the subscribe button if you have any ideas for future episodes please email us at info at skywatcherusa.com title it what's up and give us an idea uh, for future episodes uh, next week we're talking about our classic Dobsonian line uh, the 6 8 and 10 inch models uh, that's what we currently offer so we're going to go into kind of the basics of those those scopes. They're very, you know, I wouldn't say they're bare bones, but they're they're kind of what you need if you just want to get started and have some good aperture to back you up without getting too exotic. So we'll talk about the classic Dobsonian line next week. Um, but that pretty much wraps up uh, what's up for the month for February. There's obviously a ton of stuff out there. Don't be afraid to open up the books and go and star charts and hunt down cool different things out there. But... um. Yeah, so hopefully it gave you guys some ideas. Okay, I know we have questions here, so let's take a look. Your shirt merchandise is not uh, 5XL. Are you coming out with any new eyepieces? I don't know anything about the shirts. Uh, it's kind of through Threadless, so Threadless offers whatever shirt sizes are available. Um, our marketing guys are watching this episode, so we'll see what we can do there. Are we coming out with eyepieces? Not that I am aware of. Um... I'll just be right up front with you guys about Skywatcher and eyepieces, at least from where I sit. I don't speak for all of Skywatcher because Skywatcher is handled differently across the world in different regions. Um, so from my position, uh, at least here in the U.S. and Canada, there is a lot of very good eyepiece manufacturers out there. There's Teleview, Explore Scientific, Botter, Pentax, um, Celestron's got some good stuff. Uh, there's a lot of stuff out there and I don't know what more can be done on the eyepiece front. We're really good at refractors and mounts and stuff like that. So that's kind of, from my opinion, that's kind of where we seem to be focusing on. So I don't see us getting into the eyepiece game personally from where I sit, but I don't control where Skywatcher as a whole actually goes globally either. So, um, that's my stance on eyepieces at least. So if you're looking for eyepieces, there's a lot of awesome stuff out there that you can 
go with and the people at those companies are are there to to help you with um will skywatcher make o3 filters and others i don't know i think it'd be cool to do filters i that's kind of in the eyepiece world though um filters are a little easier to do i know there are some skywatcher branded filters but i don't know how any of that actually works we haven't spent a lot of time discussing filters um again there's a lot of good filter companies out there especially now that optolong is in in the game um optolong makes some really good affordable filters for imaging and visual work uh you also have you know um astronomic filters are very nice uh lumicon um chroma makes very nice filters um there's a lot of options out there as well so botter i didn't mean to skip botter botter's got a lot of nice stuff too there's options out there if you need filters and again i don't think it's really don't put me on record for it because again i can't speak for all of skywatcher but there is a lot of nice options for eyepieces and filters out there and our specialty kind of sits inside of like optics for telescopes and mounts so we probably could do it, but I wouldn't say they are really high on the totem pole of things to do, um, at least from where I sit. So we have a lot of cool stuff that we're hoping to showcase this year. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So we'll see what we can do um, in the future. Will an 18-inch reflector be enough to pop the spiral arm structure in the bright Messier gal? Yes. Um, depending on which uh, object it is, um, but, um, you put an 18 inch telescope in a dark sky site and you can see spiral arms in M81, M51. The whirlpool is unbelievable in a telescope that big. Um, I would say most of the Messiers that are spirals from a dark sky site will be quite impressive in an 18 inch telescope or anything. I'd say anything 12 inch and above galaxies tend to pop really nicely from dark skies with a 12 inch telescope or larger um if you got more aperture that's the name of the game in the world of galaxies so aperture never hurt anybody as long as you've got good seeing when you've got the exceedingly large ones probably 30 inch and bigger dobs if you have the luxury of having one around um good seeing conditions to benefit those telescopes is really required as well i've seen a lot of large dobs that the image is bright, but it's not necessarily sharp. So it's kind of this trade-off when you get really big. But you can see, you know, in that 18 to 20 inch category, or 18 to probably 30 inch category, it looks pretty darn good. Will Skywatcher make the Stargate line again? Um, here's my take on the Stargates. Um, Again, I can only speak for the U.S. and Canada. I cannot speak globally on them. They are still in production from as far as I know. Um, here in the U.S. and Canada, we had some issues with the go-to. They've addressed that as far as I know. Um, the sample that we got, the new go-to base, um, was good. But we had to utilize that by um, taking care of another issue with one. Um Quite frankly, the Stargates are very, very difficult to address issues on. So if you're an owner of one, something goes wrong, they're very expensive to service. And on top of that, they're not cheap. And 
you can only make an 18 or 20 inch telescope so affordable because it's just difficult to make one that big. And at that price point, there's a level of expectation on things. And a lot of people were comparing our telescopes to more customized hand-figured optics, you know, stuff from like New Moon and Teeter, Obsession. Um, there's a lot of really good options. So here's my take on it. If you want a telescope that big and you live in the U.S. or Canada, there are a handful of boutique manufacturers that will make your dream telescope to whatever spec you want. Um, and if you want something that big, just go to them at this point because they'll make it exactly the way you want it. So we gave it a try. There's a plenty of happy owners out there that have them, but I think we kind of found that it really just didn't fit our market. And that's kind of my opinion on the Stargates. Um, so I don't think we ever plan to sell them again, but... That's just here in the U.S. and Canada. So if you're looking for something that big, I know some guys that'll take care of you. Uh, when will telescope production pick up again? There's a good one. Um, everyone's working very hard, you know, to get this done. Um, you know, I, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that don't have visibility to like what factories are doing, at least our factory. Um, we have a really good set of people at the factory, a very smart team. Lots of people work there and they work really hard to make sure things are done as timely as possible. Um, I, I've had people on the phone who like to point fingers, you know, particularly at, you know, in the, to the Eastern countries that for whatever the reason may be, they work really exceedingly hard to make the products that we have the luxury of having they're a great team of people, very smart um, set of engineers over there that dream up all the stuff that you see in Skywatcher and a lot of the stuff you've never seen that never made it. They really think outside the box. Um, a lot of the issues haven't been so... There's been a mix of issues with everything going on right now, and it's not just from like our standpoint. Um you know, raw materials have been exceedingly difficult to obtain. So the metal to make the mounts, the glass to make the telescopes. If we can't get a hold of the materials to do it, we can't make it. So basically once the factory gets it, they make it. And they make it until they run out of those materials. And then we have to switch to something else. And there are multiple teams working to get stuff done. So everyone's trying to dig themselves out of this hole that the world is in. But if you're looking for an answer of when it's going to pick up, I wouldn't be looking at the telescope industry for that answer. I'd be looking at when is the raw material industry going to be able to supply things at a more timely fashion when is shipping going to be handled? And that's getting a little bit better. But when is shipping going to be a little bit better? Um, and then the prices of a lot of things are skyrocketed. I know people saw the price changes that have happened recently. Things got a lot more expensive. Um, that's because stuff got a lot more expensive. You know, we've held back on changing prices for a long time. Um Stuff is going up every year, and we've tried very hard to prevent stuff from being from going up. But uh, ultimately, we can only hold back the floodgates, especially when raw materials are getting more and more expensive, and shipping is getting more and more expensive. So, um, so yeah, 
we're working on it, but you know, all cylinders are firing. Uh, hopefully that answers your questions. It's complex, but no one wants to be in the position either. Um, here's a fun one just cause I want to hit it before we leave. Uh, last question, um, from Barry, is there a potential producing a harmonic balance mount? Everyone's all about this harmonic drive that's popping up from ZWO. Pegasus has one. They're actually nothing new. Um, uh, I forget the company that has made them. There's a there's a company that's had them out for a while. Rainbow um, op, Rainbow Optics, Rainbow whatever, has had uh, harmonics. Harmonic mounts aren't anything new. Um, to my knowledge, I have no... I haven't seen anything that we're doing any harmonic stuff right now. Now that I don't know what the engineers are always working on. So it's always an interesting idea to approach it. It's a very cool technology, but here's the thing about harmonic drives um, that I think there's going to be some growing pains on is a lot of people have this conception that I paid this much money for this mount and it should go unguided for blah, 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 blah. Um, I shouldn't have to guide because I paid this much. And there are mounts out there that don't have to guide. Harmonic mounts, yeah, they don't have backlash, but they have periodic error, big periodic error. It's long periodic error, so it's made to guide out. But it's not going to be this end-all, be-all answer that I think a lot of people are looking for. I think a lot of people are expecting to buy this $2,000 mount, pop a bunch of gear on it, and be able to go unguided. That's what like most people call and ask to do. That's not what these mounts are designed to do. That's not what harmonic drives are about at all. Um, basically what you're paying for, what the money goes to for harmonic drives and the advantages, you're getting a 40 pound or so payload mount that's really lightweight and easy to travel with. You're paying for the convenience of travel and lighter weight mounts while still being able to hold probably your favorite mm, five inch or smaller refractor. That's what a harmonic mount, most of these harmonic mounts are designed for. If you're going to buy one of these and put a C11 with a Hyperstar on it, you're probably going to be upset about its performance. Um, but if you're looking at these small refractors and small optics, I think they're going to be great. Harmonic mounts are very uh, futuristic approach. So I applaud anybody who's working on those mounts to push the boundaries forward. And I think the people who are going to buy them will be very happy with them overall. I'd love to try one, but I think there's going to be some growing pains because I think there's people who are going to make assumptions that it does things that it's not actually intended to do. So that's my approach to harmonics. Um, I can't wait to see them. I know some friends who've got the AM5 from ZWO on order. I'm really curious just because I like gear like the rest of you to hear how it works. Um, but as far as I know from Skywatcher's perspective, I don't know that we have any harmonics in the works right now. Um, I haven't seen anything. That doesn't mean we don't have one, but I haven't seen anything. And at that point, I couldn't discuss it if we were because NDAs. But... Um, as far as I know, we're we're just doing our typical stuff. Um, hopefully that's good enough for you on that. There's still plenty of good options to go with a standard mount, but that's kind of my take on the harmonics. It'll be interesting over the next year to see how the uh, 
hobby adapts to these new more abundant harmonic mounts so if you've got one i'm on order i'm really curious to see what you think about it and uh hopefully you enjoy it because zwo makes some good stuff and pegasus makes some cool stuff and yeah so anyway so thanks very much um we will uh see you guys uh next uh week we've got a bunch of episodes coming up uh we got a lot of there's a lot of stuff that's happening that you guys don't know about yet. So we've got a lot of cool stuff happening uh, this year. We're really excited to bring to you guys. But with that being said, please have a good weekend. We'll see you next week and uh, be safe and clear skies to the rest of you. Have a good one. Bye.